Messy Situations, it's a production of Lola Media. Say hi, Lola. They took me in to have an EKG done. And at this point, I'm like, guys, I'm sure it's gastrointestinal, thyroid, whatever. I saw the look on the guy's face as he was doing my EKG and it was printing out. And he looked at me and he looked at the EKG and he's like, honey, I think we're going to need to send you to the hospital. Welcome back to Messy Situations. I'm your host, Kane Sarhan. And I'm your co-host, Michelle Promaleko. And we are sweaty, messy, nasty, dirty, hot New Yorkers today. But <laughs> yeah, it's not sure. our fault though. I mean, sometimes <laughs> it's your fault, but today it's not our fault. It's Mother Nature who is just continuing to turn up the heat. It's kind of out of control how long this heat wave's lasted, sweltering. Sweltering. And listen, I think we make it a sport in New York to bitch about the weather. Like in the winter, <laughs> it's cold, you know, in the summer, it's hot. But like what we're dealing with now, I mean, above 100 degree heat index, multiple days in a row. And I think people like hot is hot, but I don't unless you've lived in New York or you've been to New York a lot and you don't really realize the way that we travel around this city and how much we are outdoors and on public transit and walking. But not only that, but outdoors and exposed to garbage on the sidewalk and like the smell of urine on the street, which only gets intensified when it's this hot. So really that's what we're bitching about. No, and let me tell you, I swear, Midtown in these heat waves is like 15 degrees warmer. It's like all those tall buildings, lack of airflow, shitty people like takes the temp up 10 more degrees. I don't know what it is. But I had to run up to Midtown today because we left this off a couple episodes ago and we haven't really updated. But as you know, and as Mesh knows, is I did, in fact, have monkeypox. Well, I can breathe a sigh of relief knowing that it was very mild because I was really worried about you when you first told us on messy situations that you might have it. So I very much did. And I am very thankful. Like you said, I got a very mild case from a like pox perspective. I only ended up having one, maybe two. The second one might have just been like a zit, but very mild from that perspective. I did have, unfortunately, the like crazy anal pain that comes with it, which was like one of the worst feelings of my life and literally felt like someone had a curling iron up my ass for like a week and was so, so fucking painful. But there is oh, no such thing as TMI on messy situations. No, there's not. And, and let me tell you, it was fucking horrible. But I did have monkeypox. I had a very mild case. I luckily caught it and got bandages and, you know, was able to isolate. But this morning, you know, I got back from a very short international trip for a friend's birthday and I got back last night at I don't know like 7 30 p.m. I got home at 8 30 p.m. I ate some like Indian takeout and literally like passed out on top of the covers on the bed at like 9 30 p.m. Um, like fully clothed like Danny literally like he like tried waking me up and getting me like take my clothes off brush my teeth <laughs> Like do things and I literally was like a corpse like I would not wake up so I woke up this morning at 6 a.m. and like rose from the dead and I like get up and he's like he like looks he's laughing at me he's like you're like a 22 year old falling asleep fully clothed on top of your stuff but I woke up and I had this like swelling on my cheek and I was oh, no. like oh no now listen I've had the monkeypox vaccine 
I've already had monkeypox, but I had this like bump coming like under my beard and it started like just a little this morning and it just is getting bigger and bigger and bigger all day. And I'm like, I was just in Italy. I was with like literally 200 gays, you know, not <laughs> 200. Just, yeah, it was like a guy's birthday party. It was fucking insane. It was one of the most it's a popular fun, guy, very popular human. And I'm like, I mean, listen, it was just a couple of days ago. I'm like, it's not monkeypox. I've already had the vaccine. I've already had it. But I'm like freaking out as this like bump is growing on my face. So I left the office a little early before this to go run up to my doctor in Midtown. I've gone in. It's a really bad ingrown hair. I'm trying to grow out my beard and like fully do like a proper. I'm trying to do a proper like beard. And in the process, you know, with that paired with like basically living on the beach for three days and like coming home and not washing my face and like having coarse I'm dying right now hair. I have this giant ingrown and this is the fucked up part he's like well <laughs> listen I can like cut it and lance it and like get it out for you and it'll go away but I'd have to shave like a bald spot which would mean I would have to shave my whole face and I'm like next like new option I've been working to grow in this fucking beard there's no way you're shaving a hole in it like I'm not shaving clean and he's like okay well I can give you antibiotics and we can treat it that way and I'm like no I hate antibiotics I'm not taking the antibiotics and he's like well he literally is like well because you're a pain in the ass you can just sit there and have the bump and maybe it'll go away naturally or in a couple days you'll call me and you'll wise up and you'll either let me cut it out or you'll take the fucking antibiotics. And I'm like, okay, fine. So I'm just going to like ride out my ingrown on my cheek and do like a hot compress and like wash it and do all the things and hope that it definitely, definitely pay attention to it. I'm, la- I'm just laughing because it's such a benign cane story. It usually evolves into something legitimately not good. Yeah, no. And are you going full like Brooklyn with the beard? What's going on? I do live in Brooklyn. Someone said to me, like, the beard made me look more distinguished. And I am not trying to look more distinguished. I always thought it made me look old because, you know, I have this, like, white patch, you know, on the bottom of my beard where I'm, like, where I'm graying. So it always made me feel like I look old. But one thing that's interesting is I often can dress pretty kiddish. You know what I mean? I'll be in, like, a cutoff and shorts and sneakers. And I think I have a bit of a childish personality. And as the well is getting bigger and I'm constantly working with, like, more developers and more, like, guys in suits and investors like that stuff, I've noticed that like this is sounds crazy but like when i have the beard they like take me more seriously interesting i mean you are very accomplished at a young age so i could see that but you know there's a there's a length at which it stops being distinguished oh no it's not going past this it's not going past this like yeah I'm happy to know that this, at this present moment, is not a serious situation and likely will not evolve into one. But our guest today, actually, she's dealt with much more legitimate things in terms of her health at a very young age. And so, you know, we haven't talked a ton about health issues beyond yours, Kane, on messy situations. We've dealt with a lot of relationship messes and drinking and being a con artist. (laughs) We've hit a lot of topics and we've touched a little bit on health things, but not to the degree that we're going to talk about today. So let's first welcome our guest on. We have Sumana on today. Hi, Sumana. Hey, how are you guys? So when we when we talked, you know, for a few minutes before this, I, I said, well, how do you want me to introduce you? And you were like, oh, I don't have the elevator pitch bio down, which I think only says that you've done a lot of things. That's what it says to me. But you 
are a yoga enthusiast, teacher. What else? What else do you want people out there to know about you? Let's see. Um, I am a yoga joy enthusiast. You know, I like I cringe when I say yoga teacher. I'm a sharer of yoga, something that I love and I consider like as a part of my everyday being. I'm a mom to a six-year-old daughter named Charlie and a wife and occasionally I write. Yeah. That's, yeah. And a mom to a dog, too. Don't leave out and the pet parents. Oh, yeah, Bella. Oh, my God. One-year-old. <laughs> She's insane. And my, I think my favorite thing about you that I read in, in sort of reading up on you and, and my favorite part about the way you describe yourself is, is you're a joy enthusiast, which I think is an important thing to know. One, because I think a lot of people can be reminded how important it is to find joy, to celebrate joy, to incorporate joy into their day-to-day life. And I think it is hugely important and really inspirational that you're still able to call yourself a joy enthusiast after all the stuff you've been through at such a young age. And we're going to jump into all of that right after this break. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welcome back. Thanks for joining Michelle and I and our very special guest, Sumana, today. Sumana, you are a mother of two, a child and a dog, living in Atlanta, Georgia. But our story today actually starts quite some time ago when you were a 26-year-old trying to make their way in the city that we were just bitching about earlier, New York City, right? Can you start us off at the beginning of your story and where you were at and what you were doing and sort of how your health journey really took a turn in 2006. So in April of 2006, I had been in New York for like maybe three, four years already. And I was living and working in the village. I just moved to the East Village, actually, working as an event planner for a nightclub and restaurant group at the time. So I was overseeing the special events for one club and two restaurants. Oh, what clubs and restaurants? I'm curious. Well, in the beginning, when I first moved to New York, 2002, there was a lovely Vietnamese French, you know, like the fusion thing was in French fusion place in in the West Village called uh, Hue. It was off of like Bleecker and I can't remember, Charles and Bleecker. And so I was the event planner there. And then I moved over to Quo, which is a club on like 28th. I remember Quo. Yeah, with the with all like the bubble lights and stuff. Yes. Yeah, so I was their event planner and then they opened two more restaurants and, you know, I got paid shit. Like I know now that I deserve to get paid so much more than I did. And I was fully enjoying the perks of the job at the same time, right? So there was just so much for me to experience in New York. I just remember like a couple of times in 2006 before April, I was sick, like I had like a stomach virus or something. And I remembered those two incidents. And then in April, I was sitting inside in the office and like, you know, oftentimes in nightclubs, there are no windows in the office. It's kind of like this small little room off to the back. Yeah. And it was tiny. And I remember feeling super tired 
tired going from my desk to my boss's desk, which was just like a few feet away. And then I noticed that my jeans weren't fitting properly. I was just like extra tired, still partying, still doing all the things, thinking that it was women's problems or it was just something that Or just even uh, part of the lifestyle. I mean, when you're working the events or nightlife business, I mean, you're burning the candle at both ends. You're staying up late. You're partying. You're working long hours. You're in the grind of New York City as a 20-something. It's intense. Like, it can definitely wear you down. So, like, even if you're not feeling 100%, it's so easy to chalk it up to just life in New York. Exactly. So easy to just be like, it's the it's the busyness, it's the chaos, it's all of that. But I noticed little things, Michelle, like I instead of taking the train or t- like taking the subway, I would take a cab, which is not like me because I was just too tired. Anyway, long story short, there was one day where I felt especially sick. I couldn't hold food down without like just blowing up like a balloon. I was super bloated. And I called my friend Michelle and I was like, we called her Mista. And I was like, Mista, I don't I don't feel good. Something is off. And she said, I'm going to get you an appointment. I had no health insurance, by the way. Of the course, because fucking living... nightlife and food and beverage in New York, you know, everyone's exactly. basically an indentured servant and no one has health care. And even if you did want to go to the doctor, it's petrifying, right? How much is it going to cost you? You're trying to pay rent. You're trying to take care of your basic shit. Yes. And to that point, Kay, this is so funny. So she got me an appointment at the Ryan Nina clinic, like one of those like many subsidized medical clinics. And I went down, I was walking down the street to go and I just couldn't do it. Like I couldn't take any more steps. And I was calling, I called my college friend and I was like, bro, you have to walk me down the street and talk to me because I don't think I'm going to make it. And Mr. had our friend Hector, who happened to be the patient coordinator there, come out with a wheelchair and meet me. And once we got in, it was just, like a room full of stale, sick, like sad air. There were just so many people there who needed immediate attention, right? I was very lucky that he moved me up to the front of the line. I was sitting in the wheelchair and several minutes later, they took me in to have an EKG done. And at this point, I'm like, yeah, I'm sure it's gastrointestinal, thyroid, whatever. I saw the look on the guy's face as he was doing my EKG and it was printing out and he looked at me and he looked at the EKG and he's like, honey, I think we're going to need to send you to the hospital. Not the words you want to hear and I'm sure yeah I'm sure he was shocked and you're probably thinking still at this point like yeah maybe I caught like a virus or cold or whatever exactly and I was still planning my work day the next day and so when this happened Hector came everybody came and and they said you know we want to call you an ambulance you should go in an ambulance but it's going to cost a whole lot of money so we're going to call a black car for you like those black cars that take you from Brooklyn to Manhattan I was in one of those right oh my god this is back uh, in the day black car time now you know what I mean Town cars, yeah. There were uh, like before Uber, there was like there were all these car services, and you pay them in cash. It'd be flat fee, dial seven, Carmel. Oh my God, it's like a back. But it's just so it's just so fucked up that like when someone is sick enough to need to go to the hospital, that you even have to be dealing with that. It's just so it's just so shocking and sad. The fact that someone has to decide between should I call an ambulance or should I call a fucking taxi or should I take the subway when like Sumana at this time your heart is exploding right like honey I think we need to go to the hospital seems almost a little under qualified for what was going on in your body right 
Agreed. Agreed. My heart rate was 155 beats per minute resting just in that moment. So he, you know, I think he was trying to keep me calm at the same time. It was like very underwhelming what he said. Anyway, so they called me a black car. I threw myself in. And like, by the time I got out, I think it was St. Vincent's, no, Beth Israel. I just like fell out of the car door. And once they got me into the ER, you guys, the amount of attention I got was like jarring. And I still, my dumbass did not realize that something was really, really wrong. When I just saw the looks on their faces, it was like a slew of doctors coming in and out. So let's say it's about nine in the morning, I'm in there. By midnight, I think about 10 different people have visited me. They're touching my legs to see if there was water retention. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff, things that I understand now that are very typical of heart failure were happening to me in that moment. And so it's midnight and I have my friends there and only one person can be with me at the time. So they're switching places. And I just remember a doctor coming in with a nurse and I remember her asking him, how long do you think she's gonna be here very quietly? And he was doing a portable ultrasound on me and he said, oh, at least the weekend. And that's when it dawned on me. I was like, oh shit, I'm, I'm not going anywhere. And the next thing you know, they throw me on a gurney very gently, but it felt very quick. And I have all these doctors looking over me and they said, we're gonna take you to the ward and we're gonna take care of you but nothing really is being told to me at the time and I just I looked at the doctor and I was like am I going to be okay should I be freaking out and he said kiddo should you be freaking out no are we concerned yes and then they wheeled me upstairs to the room and then they gave me the whole breakdown like you have an enlarged heart we think it's some sort of like viral heart failure that you're dealing with i'm not going to use the medical terms because i'm going to fuck it up but that's when i knew and i think the next thing i said is can i have something to sleep you know can i you know and so they gave me an ambient which was like whoa something's wrong with your heart but here are some drugs <laughs> yes yeah. so totally. to like knock yourself out but I mean, they must have been shocked because you're 26 years old, right? They, so they you don't see congestive heart failure typically in a 26 year old. And until you just said it, I didn't even realize that it was something that could be the result of a viral infection. So did they say that was rare? Did you feel sick prior to this like exhaustion or not really? No, I didn't, Michelle. But the one thing I can say is that I was in between apartments at one point within those four months and I was living in Williamsburg off of like a fifth and South Barry. So I'm living there with two friends of mine before I move into my other apartment. And it was a huge loft. And the room I was in like partially was uninsulated. And so they think that perhaps I breathed in mold or something happened in those months to where I got sick. And they called it idiopathic viral cardiomyopathy, which pretty much means that there was no real known origin of how it happened, but it happened. So I'm going to go into like one medical term. Your ejection fraction is the percentage of oxygenated blood that your heart pumps out to the rest of your body. Your heart doesn't close all the way, so nobody is at 100%, right? But if you're at like 65, 65 is great, right? Anything under 40 is something that they start to kind of like monitor. 30, 20, they really start to monitor. I was at 5%. Oh, oh my God. Yeah, so it was just barely opening and closing. So barely pumping blood yeah. to your body, right? Like I'm surprised you could think, talk, 
you obviously were having trouble walking. Like it doesn't seem like you'd be able to do anything at 5%. So they didn't, they couldn't trace exactly how it happened, but they thought it was probably environmental. And so how did they treat you? a whole bunch of medications, beta blockers and ACE inhibitors and water pills to get rid of the water retention, all of that, you know, they immediately put me on a heart monitor, of course. Um, and I would have these like really painful injections during the day, blood thinners, all sorts of stuff. And I don't know how my mom did it, but she flew from Bangladesh to New York within like a day and a half, you know, it was what it felt like to me. And she was there and um, the MD who was doing rounds, he came in and he said, poor guy. He 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 was earnest in his worry for me. He was like, oh, this is very bad. This is very bad. And he was like this. And my mom, being my mom, she was like, what's very bad? And he said, well, we're going to put you in the heart transplant list, but like, it's not looking good, basically. Right? I feel so bad because I like my mom, basically, she had just French braided my hair. I had gotten a little sponge bath. Like, I was feeling really good about life in that moment. So as soon as he walked out, I saw her walk after him. And I was like, oh, shit. You know, and she went and she cornered him and she was like you broke that little girl's spirit you know blah 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 and all this stuff and he said I'm so sorry and fortunately for him and for me the cardiologist came in who was this amazing young man shout out to Dr. Naveen Nakra who said I'm going to take care of your little girl Mrs. Khan it's going to be okay he got me connected with my cardiologist Dr. Jill Kalman who was like a legend so we ended up going to NYU Medical we were transferred there she said, we're going to implant a, an ICD, a defibrillator into your heart uh, to attach to your heart because we don't, we, you know, you're responding really well to the medications. You have youth on your side. So let's try the ICD. And they did. And so on in May of 2006, I was implanted with an ICD. And so this is my little scar right here. So they go oh. in through just under the collarbone. It was like a combination defibrillator slash pacemaker, right? So the defibrillator was there to shock my heart into place if it went wonky. And that's what was happening is my heart rate would elevate and then I would go into this abnormal rhythm. And sometimes, you know, you need the paddles, right? You need like, it's like a portable paddle. Unfathomable to be going through this at such a young age. It was crazy. It was pretty, it, it was nuts. And when I think back on it, Michelle, I can't remember how I was going through it. I think I was just dealing with it day to day because it was so new to me. I had no idea what was happening next. And so they did the ICD surgery. They put it in. Looked like I had got a boob job. I was very happy, very pleased. <laughs> and so that happened. And then we're going to cut to several months later. It's Feb of 2007. And I'm coming out of the subway uh, on Christopher Street. And I had just had a Red Bull, which I shouldn't. Nobody drink Red Bull. It's bad for you. So any, at the time that I did. And when I got off at the train station at Christopher Street, I was walking and all of a sudden I felt like, I, I don't know how to explain it. It felt like a huge jolt to my heart, like somebody had punched me in my heart, but it vibrated. So I thought that I had hit a turnstile, like I wasn't looking and it was winter, mind you. So I had gloves on and I was walking. And I obviously looked confused because this very nice young man next to me said, are you okay? And I was like, yeah, I think so. And then it happened again. And I don't know what made me think that it was my defibrillator. I said, I said, no, I'm not okay. My pacemaker is firing. And I said pacemaker because it's a more commonly used yeah, term. Totally. And he said, okay, don't worry. And he grabbed my hand. He held my hand. He took me to the stairs. Well, and in that moment, a young lady was coming down the stairs and she saw me sitting there and she just looked at me. She's like, honey, can I call somebody for you? And I was like, yes, please. And she fished my phone out of my bag and called my husband. He was just down the street, but he was working and he couldn't come. So he 
sent one of the guys he was working with to like lay eyes on me to make sure that I was okay until he could get somebody to cover for him. And uh, they immediately called the paramedics and I'm sitting there and then the paramedics came, they put me in the stretcher and I'm on the gurney and, and I was like, bro, can you please just turn it off? please turn it off. And they said, we can't because we don't know exactly what's going on or if it's actually providing you therapy or not. It was so painful. And I just remember, so seven, seven shots altogether. The third one happened in the ambulance and I flew off the gurney and they felt so bad because they didn't know what to do. And, you know, it was more the apprehension and anticipation of when is the next shot going to hit me? Because I don't know at this point. And I feel fine. And I think what happens is most of the time, if a defibrillator is offering you therapy, something's going on with you, right? So I was fully lucid and like fully awake and it was just hitting me. So we get to the hospital and again, I'm like, please turn it off. And my husband's there by that time. And this really lovely man from Medtronic, he came, pressed some buttons, turned it off. It was off. And that same night or the day after I put, I got a new defibrillator put in me. And then a couple of days later, I'm watching TV with my mom and this law office commercial comes on. And it's like, if you have been implanted with Medtronic defibrillator, 697, whatever, the lead has been recalled. These model numbers have been recalled. No. So you oh my had God. a faulty defibrillator on top of everything else? Like how how many surge? I mean, I hope you got a real boob job in one of these. Jesus. I, listen, I'm That's still like working on it. That's like going under the knife a lot. It was. It was. Months later, at this point, my husband and I moved to Charlotte, where he's from originally, and I hear a beep. And and I like I leaned over and I was like, oh my God, it's my defibrillator. So we went to the hospital and I was like, it's going off. And then again, the nurse turns to me and he was like, honey. And I said, no. He said, something's wrong with the lead. I, I said, don't tell me you have to change it. He's like, I, I think we have to. And so then the third one got put in. Oh my God. And what year are we in now? So first one goes in 2006. Where are we? Like how many years have passed that it's taken three fucking defibrillators to keep you alive? Okay, right. So two. 2006, first one's put in. 2007, the second one is put in. And then in 2008 or 9, a new one was put in. And then that too started to beep one day. So by 2012, and that third one beeped. And they were like, you know what, your ejection fraction, which I mentioned before, was that percentage of blood oxygen to the rest of your body. Mine had gone up to about 50%, which is fantastic for somebody in general, but somebody who had had heart failure as well. And we all decided, we had a round table and we're like, we're gonna take it out. We're gonna take it out, keep it out. And that was that. So that was my last heart surgery. Okay, Samana. So at this point, you've gotten the defibrillator taken out. You and your doctors have made a decision that it's not going back in. So when we get back from this break, I want to hear how your life changed because I can imagine you had to do something to make sure that without this machine, you were going to be okay. So when we get back from this break, I want to hear how your lifestyle changed. We'll be back. Okay, so when we left off before the break, you were obviously relieved, you had the defibrillator taken out, but I would imagine you had to think about lifestyle habits, you know, activity level, food, taking care of your body in a new way. How did your life change after the device came out? You know what's funny is um, I think that I went through all of those motions of I'm gonna be super healthy and I definitely uh, reduced my diet to a low sodium diet and followed all those rules. However, 
I had a lot of access to pain medication because I had a lot of pain. And that is when I slowly started to develop an opioid dependence that I didn't know was, was happening. And I was being prescribed it. So I was just taking it right and building up this tolerance. And as I was noticing how accessible it was to me, and as I was getting more dependent, I was becoming more slick. And I was thinking, Oh, well, I mean, I can just ask for it because I have such a very sad case of like pain that anybody will give it to me. And they did. So I did manipulate the system because I was dependent on it. I'm not going to lie. Like I truthfully was like, I still have pain. Can I have a refill? And they would give it to me. You know, I'm not necessarily proud of that. And it was just at this point, I was just in it. And I was thinking, this is what I need. And without it, I'm desperate without it. And and it was like that kind of a dependency on it, right? To where I felt like could, I couldn't function. And I remember the very first time, because nobody told me about the withdrawals. Nobody told me how to wean off. They very, very like on the surface were like, make sure when you're done with this, you wean off. But, you know, and then when it was time for me to ask for support, I didn't have it. I didn't have an addiction specialist. I just had medical doctors who were giving it to me for pain. So let's not forget it was it was designed to be addictive. So you should feel no shame and no one should ever feel shame in any addiction, right? It's a medical disorder. It's something we all deal with. It's it's something that a majority of Americans will actually have a problem with at some point in their life with some type of substance. But on top of it, the withdrawals can be more dangerous than taking it. They can kill you. I mean, there are people who 100%. die from opioid withdrawals, if not handled properly, every single day in this country, right? If they, if they yes. do try to quit cold turkey. So how did you go through that process? And, and sort of today, I'm, you know, as part of your health journey and sort of the next phase of your life, you do get off the opioids. And, and how did you navigate that? In 2012 is when I found yoga. And I think it was right around that time where I thought it was just getting out of control because I remember feeling withdrawals for the first time and being like, what? is this? I mean, it was the most God awful feeling in the entire world. You know, there was just no functioning. So I talked to my husband and my mom. I'm very, very lucky to have supportive family around me. And we checked me into Mercy Horizons. And what they did was they used a medicine called Suboxone to get me off of the opioids. Suboxone is also very addictive. And Suboxone was even more painful to get off of. They put me on that. And then I was on a low dose for years. So by the time, let's just, I think it's 2018 that we moved to Atlanta. And in between, I'm on Suboxone the whole time. And I got pregnant in 2016. They took me off the Suboxone, put me on Subutec, which was less harmful to the baby. But y'all, I was going to like a methadone clinic every day and getting a dose of Subutec. So that was the only way that I could have the medicine. If they took me off the Suboxone, as soon as I found out I was pregnant, cold turkey or that quickly, it would be very detrimental. And so they switched me to Subutex. So I was going to the methadone clinic every single day. And then as you go there more often, it's like every other day, every few days, if you're doing well and you're doing what you're supposed to. And then when I had Charlie in 2016, my baby had to wean off of the Subutex in the hospital for two weeks. So my daughter weans off as a little baby in the hospital for two weeks and they put me back on Suboxone. Oh no, I'm still on Subutex. They're like, you're breastfeeding. You have all these changes happening. My heart function had immediately gone down after I gave birth. So they were very concerned about me medically in that moment, right? And so I'm still on Subutex and then they're like, okay, well, you're now going to be back on Suboxone because at six months she was done breastfeeding. And long story short, we moved to Atlanta. By 2018, I was like, I want to get the 
fuck off this medication. I was a slave to it, you guys. Like, you know, if I yes. don't take it, I'm sick. And it was horrible and it's it's expensive and very hard to find. And I found the most incredible doctor. She's Bangladeshi. She's an addiction specialist. And at home with my mom, my husband, like under their care, it was hell. She used all the medicines and all her knowledge to get me off the Suboxone. And so I've been off of it since 2018. And I feel fantastic. And, you know, in 2012, even through this Suboxone phase is when I found yoga. My, my girlfriend brought me into what was then my home studio. And I walked into my first heated vinyasa class and I fell in love. And then they got me. And somehow, like two weeks later, I was doing the teacher training program and I got my 200 hours and I didn't teach for a couple of years because I was terrified. But for me, you know, practicing yoga was so much more like than the physical practice, right, which is a very small little facet of the entirety of yoga. And what I found in it was a place to be still and a place to be able to connect. You know, I was treating my body more so like a science project than a sad and defeated kind of soul and like oh so I have the awareness now that I don't have this drug in me and this is what it feels like and this is how it feels in my body and these are the sensations and these are the feelings that go along with it and and like where can I move from here and when I found that stillness and I found that pause between my breaths is when I like locked in and got grounded to you know what yoga can really mean for me and, and for me it's a it's a choice to be living in my natural state if that makes sense i think that's so powerful and i think one part i'd love you sort of into is what did you turn to in yoga and what did you use and how did you use it to really heal your body and where did you find success in that so the first half of my journey was through the physical practice because that's what i found first right and being able to move through a rigorous flow while breathing and intentionally moving my inhalation and my exhalation to each movement kind of listening to the teacher's cues i had no time to think i was just there and doing the thing and present and on my mat and feeling all of myself. So that was the first part that really helped me get grounded into my physicality. I, I was never a sports girl in, in school. I was always the last one pick. But when I found my practice, this is my practice. And this is my way of expressing myself in this moment. And I remember my teacher said, you know, the way you show up on your mat right now is the way you're showing up in the world. And and I that took that with me everywhere and allowed myself to lean into it rather than like I was always in a state of clinging and resistance and not just kind of being. And so that's where I got grounded first. And then I found my meditation practice in the latter years, like now. And I've experienced bliss and joy that I could never explain in words. And it's so sacred that I don't even like to talk about it because I wouldn't know how to express that connection to, to source or whatever we call it. And so I know, you know, I don't have the answers and a lot of things I don't understand. Um, I don't even touch on religion because I will never understand any of those things. What I do understand is that there is a deeper connection and that I am threaded to something much bigger and more potent and more impactful than I could like ever be as my individual. And I am afraid that I sound like I'm just putting a whole lot of jargon out there, but that's the only no, way I can explain no, it. No, I don't think you do at all. And you know, it's things that we talk about at the well all the time where Kane and I work and where Kane's a co-founder. But I think what's exciting is that, you know, you're experiencing it and people who go through their own, you know, sort of experimentation with different modalities and find the thing that really works for them and speaks to them, they experience it. But even science is catching 
coming up with those experiences to sort of better explain the systemic connection between what we think and how our body reacts. You know, they're not disconnected. So I I know we're towards the end of our conversation, but... (laughs) You went through something else that was big that sounds like you're on the other side of, and hopefully yoga helped you get through it in a, a more you know serene way. But do you want to just quickly tell us what that was? Not It deserves a whole other episode probably. <laughs> no, I'm going to give you guys a 20 second spiel real quick. Thank you for, for saying that. Yeah, so I developed Graves' disease, which is an autoimmune disorder that causes hyperthyroidism in the body. That was in 2016 after I had Charlie. And then several months ago, sitting here in Atlanta, and I, you know, I felt a little like a bump or something in my neck, and I went to my endocrinologist and it turns out that I was diagnosed with thyroid cancer and I was told that it's a good cancer in the sense that it rarely comes back and once the thyroid is taken out you're good to go so so I've known a bunch of people who have had it and had that same experience and they're totally fine yes yes exactly so I had a thyroidectomy in May a few months ago and other than some some weight gain and some inflammation and just kind of titrating my medications I feel good sometimes I get sleepy but you know I'm a mom I'm always sleepy Exactly. (laughs) Well, at the end of every episode, Samana, we like to bless this mess. Um, It's not a it's not a religious thing, as you said, it's whatever, however you connect with the word bless. And we very much want to bless your mess, which you're on the other side of. And you're the poster girl for resiliency. You've been through so much starting at such a young age and you have I mean, you just like emanate, you know, joy and glowiness and and lightness. I can kind of see it coming right through the Zoom and it's not a ring light. I know that because you really walk your talk. But thank you so much for sharing your harrowing story that is super inspiring because that was all scary and now you're on the other side with what seems like a beautiful life. I'm sure there's still hard days, but wishing you good health and blessing this mess and thank you for coming on messy situations thank you thank you so much you guys are amazing thanks and just one last question because i need to know did you sue the fuck out of that defibrillator maker class action lawsuit and um yes. you know is it settled yet? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it, it's settled? settled and it settled and it was good enough <laughs> whatever right. that means good enough is good enough yeah <laughs> uh Suma, thank you so much for your time today sending lots of blessings love and light to you your husband your beautiful little daughter and thank you so much for sharing your mess with us today we really appreciate it thank y'all so so much it was a pleasure Messy Situations is a production of Lola Media and is produced and engineered by Riley McCaskill with assistant producer Mesh Lakani.